This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. This is the Science Podcast for December 9th, 2022. I'm Kevin McLean, filling in for Sarah Crespi. Each week, we interview journalists and scientists about their work published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, we have the state of science in Ukraine. Contributing correspondent Rich Stone traveled to Kharkiv and Chernobyl earlier this year to meet researchers living and working through the war. He spoke with Sarah Crespi to share some of their stories. Then we have a conversation between our own editor-in-chief, Holden Thorpe, and the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Anthony Fauci. After more than 50 years in government service, Dr. Fauci will be stepping down this month. He shares his thoughts on the ongoing challenges of communicating about science and public health, combating misinformation, and a bit about where he wants to focus his energy in the future. Now we have contributing correspondent Rich Stone. He went on a reporting trip to Ukraine in October, and he spent time in two scientifically important cities, Chernobyl and Kharkiv, in the midst of war. Hi, Rich. Hey, Sarah. I think most people might have an idea about why you went to Chernobyl, but what drew you to this place, uh, Kharkiv? Kharkiv is considered the crown jewel of Ukrainian science. Some of the best institutes are in Kharkiv from the Soviet days. I was particularly interested in the situation in Kharkiv because it's very close to the Russian border. It's only 25 kilometers away from the border. And they suffered horribly in the early weeks of the war. They were bombed incessantly, basically, from February until June. A lot of the institutes were hit hard, and I wanted to go there both to document the damage and the personal stories of the scientists in Kharkiv, and also just to show the Western scientific community does care about their situation. Yeah. Well, what was it like to be there? You mentioned they went through a lot of bombings early in the war, and now it's been, I guess, quieter. Uh, What was it like to be there in person? When I started planning the trip, some of my Ukrainian 
colleagues who were helping me in Kiev, the capital, were pretty nervous about me going out to Kharkiv. The situation on the ground back in late August, early September was still pretty tenuous. There was still quite a lot of Russian presence in the in the Kharkiv region. Then in mid-September, uh, Ukraine, in a stunning counteroffensive, recaptured most of Kharkiv region. So it made it a little bit more comfortable both for my Ukrainian hosts and me to travel out there. Right. You must have seen a lot of the effects of this bombardment. Yeah, downtown Kharkiv has been devastated. Many of the buildings in the downtown are damaged, either reduced to rubble or had their windows blown out by the shockwaves of blasts. The city of 1.4 million people before the war is about half of that now. So it's pretty quiet on the streets. And people, when I visited in October, were still very much in kind of a mode where they were trying to pick up the pieces and gird themselves against what they knew would be a very hard winter. Oh, absolutely. I assume there are a lot of scientists that you were able to talk to who had stuck around because their work is there, their facilities are there, their families are there. Yeah. When I first arrived in Ukraine, I was in Kiev and I was speaking with the president of the Ukrainian Academy of Science, Anatoly Zagorodny. He just waxed poetically about the heroism of the scientists who stayed in Kharkiv. Like the rest of the city, many scientists left, but about half of them did stay. And they were trying to keep the institutes running. They were trying to preserve specimens. They were trying to save important scientific instruments. They were doing this at great personal risk. You talk about one scientist who basically stopped practicing science and decided to turn her attention to helping everybody else. Yeah, many scientists have many different stories. So Olga Spock is a marine mammologist. She was actually working for Russian Academy of Sciences Institute in Moscow for many years. She's Ukrainian. She was born in Kharkiv. The day before the war, She returned to Ukraine to her native Kharkiv, woke up the next morning, and her city was under attack. She started volunteering, helping the Ukrainian military and doctors source supplies. She said, you know, it was basically a very stark turning point for her life. She can't imagine right now going back to doing science. She's very much focused on supporting the war effort. Another really interesting story you share was a family that moved into the museum where all of the natural history specimens are stored. Yeah, it's actually one of the researchers at the museum, Julia Guglia. She's an entomologist. When war broke out, she and her husband and their teenage son moved into the basement of the museum. She dedicated herself to moving valuable specimens from the vulnerable upper stories of the museum down into the safety of the basement. They've been living there ever since. And then her in-laws, her husband's parents joined them. And she, with the help of just a few other museum colleagues, she's been able to to save a lot of the specimens that could have been damaged. The museum, like many other buildings downtown, had its windows blown out by blast. When I visited in October, they were busily boarding up the windows, knowing that there was a very good chance that there was going to be extended power outages during the winter. 
And that has certainly proven to be the case as Russia bombs power stations. But um, they are still dedicated to trying to sustain the scientific collections. Yeah. This town, I can't emphasize enough how much of a scientific powerhouse it is. You mentioned there's a linear accelerator, there's stellarators, there's a synchrotron, there's a subcritical nuclear reactor that has recently come online. How are those large facilities faring in all of this? So some of those big science facilities you mentioned are at the Kharkiv Institute of Physics and Technology, which is the largest institute in Ukraine. It has an amazing history. It was founded by some of the greatest minds in theoretical physics in the late 1920s. Perhaps the greatest theoretical physics of the Soviet times, Lev Landau, came there in 1932, and they quickly established it as a major physics institute. During World War II, the head of the Soviet anabomb program, Kurchatov, declared that the Kharkiv Institute would become laboratory number one of the atom bomb effort. When that happened, this institute full of vitality with international ties became a secret institute. It was closed off from the Western world and actually from the rest of the country as well. It wasn't until Ukraine became independent in 1991 that the institute was turned back to its roots as a peaceful physics institute. As a result of an agreement between Ukraine and the U.S., a highly enriched uranium stockpile at the Institute from the Cold War was removed from the Institute and taken to Russia to be blended down to non-weapons-grade fuel. And as, as a payment for that, for giving up that material, the U.S. Department of Energy paid for a subcritical nuclear reactor, experimental reactor, that just came online literally just a few months before war broke out. It's called the Neutron Source. It's a unique facility and it has the potential to do world-class size. How did this nuclear reactor, the subcritical nuclear reactor, is it okay? I know they didn't keep it on during the bombings. Because the Russian troops were in such close proximity, the Institute was pretty vulnerable. In fact, it was targeted by the Russians because of some faults propaganda in the Russian press that the Institute was still in the nuclear weapons kind of business. I mean, it was some stories in the Russian press to that effect. So the Russian military targeted KIPT, as the Institute is known, and um, they documented over 100 separate attacks on the KIPT campus, missiles, cluster bombs, shelling, etc. And by pretty much stroke of luck, the uh, subcritical reactor building was hit, so suffered some superficial structural damage, but the reactor itself was unharmed, was untouched. They were lucky. They were lucky that the reactor was unscathed. You know, the building was damaged and also the voltage supply, which is a pretty expensive piece of equipment, was uh, hit by a missile. So it's going to take a lot of work to bring it back online. There's another, uh, I think, unique facility there that you mentioned in your story, and it's a radio telescope, but focused on very, very low frequency waves. And it's used to look at pulsars and the interstellar medium. Did that survive so far? Yes and no. This is the largest radio telescope of its kind. It's a decameter radio telescope, and it was inaugurated in 1972. So Ukrainian 
radio astronomers were pioneers of this frequency range. It's a facility on the outskirts of Kharkiv that was occupied by Russian soldiers early on in, in the war. So the radio astronomers, most of them who are based in Kharkiv city itself, didn't have access to the site until the Russian troops were driven out of Kharkiv region. When they got there, they found that it's an antenna array. So there's 2,400 antennas in two kind of long rows. And the antennas appear to be intact. But the control room with all the computer equipment and other equipment that is necessary to operate the telescope array, that was looted and destroyed. So they're fortunate that the antennas themselves are intact, but there's going to have to be an effort to replace a lot of the equipment to run the array. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to predict the future. This is a very uncertain situation. But if the war keeps going as it is and and Ukraine fights the Russians back over to their side of the border, what's going to happen to this place with such a, a high concentration of scientific mines, scientific facilities that's really very, very damaged. The Ukrainian scientific establishment from the president of the academy on down to other other officials in Ukrainian science, they're really interested in restoring Kharkiv as the center of gravity of science in the country. So any post-war recovery program that helps Ukrainian science, a lot of that effort is going to be centered on, on Kharkiv. Certainly, it was damaged more than any other region, of the scientific infrastructure, I should say. But long term, the big question is, will talented minds who left Kharkiv come back? Even after the war ends and there's a peace, Russia is still going to be only 25 kilometers away. And the Ukrainians based on their experience, especially in the last several months, are this generation of Ukrainians, at least, is not going to trust Russia again. So it's going to be a hard sell to bring scientists back to Kharkiv. But I think that's one of the big efforts that, that Ukraine's going to try to make. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take a little side trip to Chernobyl. This was part of your reporting, and I'm, I get why you went there because it's basically your hometown, your second home away from home. <laughs> You've been there quite a, minute, quite a few times, but really, you know, it was held for weeks by Russian forces and there, there was a lot of concern that something really bad would happen. I mean, I don't know what the specifics worries were because, you know, there's radiation there, there's a risk of exposure, there's lots of areas that people shouldn't go into, but, you know, if the army decides to do that, who's going to stop them? There could have been explosions. None of that happened. So what actually did occur during the occupation of Chernobyl by the Russian forces? Yeah, it is kind of my home away from home. I've been traveling to Chernobyl since 1996, which was the 10th year anniversary of the explosion there when the reactor melted down, caught fire and contaminated a lot of the region and parts of Western Europe. So so I've been tromping back there. And yes, the Russians did occupy Chernobyl from the very first hours of the invasion for about a month. And there are all kinds of reports about Russian soldiers in the contaminated forest around outside Chernobyl, both, you know, wondering if the high radioactivity exposure they were receiving was going to harm them, but also they were contaminating places that they later went to, including the Chernobyl power plant. They looted institutes in Chernobyl village and 
by the time Chernobyl scientists got back in, in late March, they were able to document the damage. But to their big relief, there's a lot of worries that the Russians would make off with very highly radioactive samples from inside destroyed reactor that could be used for a dirty bomb. So samples that could be connected to part of a conventional explosive that would disperse radioactive contamination. They were relieved to find that these very dangerous sources were still in a vault. So they dodged a bullet. At the same time, the future of Chernobyl is a bit cloudy because a lot of the scientists live in a town called Slavutich, which they would travel by train to Chernobyl, but the train passes through Belarusian territory. So with Belarus now an enemy of Ukraine, that that route is closed and they have to take a six-hour bus journey from Slavutich to Chernobyl to work. So they're working in shifts and uh, there's plans now to try to consolidate the scientific expertise around Chernobyl and build up the town of Slavutich as a major research center. That's in the works now as a consequence of, of, of the invasion. It's not just monitoring and like planning how to bring down the radiation levels and protect everybody else from what happened there, but there's also research being done on the best way to take care of this. There's a lot of research, kind of cutting edge research on decommissioning Chernobyl because the scale of the problem is so great. The contamination locked inside this concrete tomb that is encapsulating the Unifor reactor, it's a huge scientific challenge to figure out how to safely deal with that. And so that's going to be a pretty active area of research for Ukraine and anyone interested in this field for the next 40, 50 years. That's the timeline for the decommissioning. So they're hoping to consolidate a lot of that expertise in Slavutich town. This is all contingent on peace <laughs> arriving the end of the war. But once that happens, I think uh, there'll be quite a transformation of that area. What was it like to be back there as someone who's visited a number of times in various conditions over the decades? For a while during my trip, it was a pretty quiet time. But then Ukraine bombed the bridge between Crimea and the Russian mainland toward the end of my trip, and everyone was expecting retaliation from Russia. The last day of my trip in Ukraine, I was going up to Chernobyl. It was a day trip from Kiev, and it was the Monday, October 10th. About halfway up to Chernobyl, it's a two-hour drive. We stopped at a little cafe for coffee, and we got out, ordered our coffee, and um, moments later, three cruise missiles flew right over our heads. So I was with a couple of Chernobyl scientists and we just looked up agape. And it was such a surreal moment to see this. We could hear the Ukrainian military trying to shoot down the cruise missiles. Kind of in hindsight, we realized it would have been awkward if they shot it down right over our heads. That could have been a problem. But, um, but we didn't really feel threatened by it. But it was still such a weird moment. It really brought the war close to home. And we continued on to Chernobyl. A lot of the Chernobyl researchers have family in Kiev, and Kiev was under attack that day. So you can imagine they were pretty distracted when we were talking. It was, it was just a very tense. And um, in Chernobyl, we felt perfectly safe because 
Russia was extremely unlikely to target Chernobyl and contaminate that area close to its ally Belarus. But still, you know, it's just so weird to know that people were worried about their families. They were constantly calling back to Kiev. And then we returned to Kiev that evening. And uh, I had been scheduled on an evening train out of the country. But it was, uh, it was a very tense and strange last day. Thank you so much, Rich. You're welcome, Sarah. Rich Stone is a contributing correspondent for Science. You can find a link to the article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Next up, we have a conversation between science editor-in-chief Holden Thorpe and outgoing NIAID director Anthony Fauci. But before we get to that, I just want to remind you to please take our audience survey at science.org slash podcasts. It'll really help us out as we plan out our next year. That's science.org slash podcasts. Thanks. Now on with the show. In August, Anthony Fauci announced that he would be stepping down from his government roles as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and chief medical advisor to the president. In more than five decades of public service, he's helped the country through numerous public health emergencies, providing a leading voice during the AIDS crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic. Science Editor-in-Chief Holden Thorpe interviewed Fauci for an editorial in this week's issue, and we've provided an edited version of their conversation for you here on the podcast. You can read the editorial and the extended transcript of the interview at science.org. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there is no better, more trusted resource than science careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Thanks for doing this. I got a few questions for you. They're ones you've answered a lot, but they won't be the ones that every journalist asks you. I'm, you're sick of answering those. You don't need to do that today. Okay. Um, <laughs> So my first question is about misinformation and vaccine hesitancy, which is maybe a little different spin from how you often get asked this, which is even Francis said, you know, I wish we knew more where hesitancy comes from. But we've seen this on tobacco, climate change, the Scopes trial, whether HIV causes AIDS or not. So is it really that surprising that we had all this misinformation and vaccine hesitancy? I think there's something here that's really fundamentally different. And you picked out one that goes way back that I was deeply involved with, was fighting against HIV denialism. The difference now is the absolutely huge impact of social media as a vehicle of misinformation and disinformation. The system is being flooded with disinformation. So I don't know how to counter that. I always say the best way to counter misinformation is to flood the system with correct information. And that's still true. 
but you're fighting against a big surge of misinformation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all hands on deck to figure out what to do. And I'm glad you're staying in the game with us to help us figure I out. I am. I yeah. certainly am. Another issue we have is when people of our own within our scientific community engage in this kind of thing, usually they're from outside their field who've suddenly decided they know virology or epidemiology or one of these things. But to the outside world, they're a highly credentialed professor at a great university. And so if Joe Rogan's saying, well, yeah, but I got this from a Stanford professor, that's very hard for us to counter. Is there anything the universities or the funding agencies or anybody, the colleagues at their universities can can do about this? You've got to come back and push back against things that are not true and is so difficult. The other thing we face is you don't want to do anything to interfere with a person's right to express their own opinion. Otherwise, we are in the wrong because we're you know, interfering with free speech, which is one of the foundations of our own democracy. But it gets very, very difficult to draw that line between when you say you disagree with somebody, that people will misconstrue that, that you're trying to silence someone else. We're not trying to silence anybody, but you have to push back when someone gives a declaration or a discussion or a recommendation that clearly on evidence-based science is untrue. To me, that that's the most challenging part of this. But I think, you know, we have a system that protects us from groupthink and does enable people to challenge us. It's just that when there's a consensus, we have a high barrier to disproving that consensus, which is submit a paper to a journal, get it reviewed, have lots of people look at the data. And then if it really does disprove the consensus, that's a great way to get a paper into science. We mostly publish papers that surprise people. That's part of the process of science, which it seems to me we haven't done a very good job of communicating. We've made it look like you know, we just carry a bunch of facts around in an encyclopedia and share them with people and that we're not carrying on this beautiful human process that you and I have devoted our lives to. The beauty of what our profession is, Holden, is just what you said, the iterative, self-correcting process. So if you say something today and evidence changes a month, a year later, You're going to evolve your thinking, and with the evolution of your thinking, you're going to be changing things like recommendations or guidelines or what have you. For those who don't understand the iterative nature of science, you are flip-flopping and you've undermined the entire scientific process. That's the way they think. But one of the things that maybe we could do better is articulate to people that when we tell them something based on the evidence we have now, that we are dealing with an evolving situation. And at any given time, you don't know all the answers. So there are two things that have got to go on. We, in the scientific community, have got to articulate the uncertainty 
associated with something that is a real fact now that you always leave the door open, not to empirically changing your mind, but changing your mind on the basis of new data. At the same time, that we've got to do a better job as a nation of educating people for better science literacy. We've got to get people more attuned to understanding what science is. Anyway, that's a bit yeah. of a long-winded answer no. to your question, but that's the way I feel about it. It's a real problem. Yeah, I agree. You know, Tony, we we see a lot of people go in the administration, people we knew before they went in, and suddenly it gets a lot harder to talk to them. And we mostly deal with their press people and stuff. But you've always talked directly to people and especially directly to scientists, even in your government roles. What can we do to get more government officials to be as comfortable as you are talking to, to their peers? You know, as a scientist, you have an obligation. As a human being, you have an obligation, but you have a double obligation as a scientist to speak the truth and not be evasive, because that's antithetical to the scientific principles. And that's what I've tried to do. So when people ask me a question, I don't see any reason not to answer the question. And I think we've got to make it so that people in government, particularly scientists in government, feel comfortable about that. And when I talk to my scientific colleagues in government, Often they're afraid to say something, and I'm telling them behind the scenes, but what's the problem? You're not going to lose your job for telling the truth. You may make some people a little concerned, but so what? <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. Just be open and, and transparent. And I always found that that has served me very, very well. Yeah, and we sure do appreciate it. So... Everyone wants to know what you're going to do next, and you may not be ready to tell us explicitly, but you can give us the broad strokes. So the answer is, I don't know. And let me explain why. The ethical rules say you're not supposed to negotiate the details of anything you're going to do after you leave government until you actually leave government. So I don't have anything that is planned or decided on. I say to myself, so I'm going to be 82 years old when I step down. What do I have going for me? I have 54 years of experience as a scientist in the government. I have 38 years of experience as the leader of a major, major institution. And I have the privilege of having advised seven presidents of the United States. So I have experience, and I think I have reasonably good judgment. So how do I use that now while I still, even though I'm 82, have energy, have passion, have enthusiasm, and thank goodness, I still am healthy. For the next few years, I want to be able to write. I want to be able to lecture. I want to be able to advise when asked for advice and use the benefit of my experience to do two things, to help people, but also as important to inspire young people to either go into science or if you are in science, to pursue it in a manner that benefits the public health and to do it with public service. That is the theme of what I'm going to do. 
the venue in which I'm going to do that, I'm not sure right now, but that's what I'm definitely going to do. What advice would you give to a young scientist, maybe changing their career a little bit less in the laboratory, more in government, to do public service the way you have? Well, there are two things. First of all, as, as a theme, Holden, I would say the gratification that you get in public service, if you haven't done it and you have an inkling towards it, it is just a wonderful feeling to know that what you're doing is serving mankind. I mean, that's really what we all try to do in science. We do it in different ways. The next thing I would advise is pick out something that in your gut you really are excited about. And I have seen scientists that have come through my lab for the 54 years that I've been doing this, who sometimes get the feeling that they're doing what people expect them to do or what would seem to be the kind of in thing to do, as opposed to digging deep and saying, what is it I really feel like I want to do? And when you get passionate about something, it unleashes in you an incredible amount of energy that you didn't even know you had. You know, it's kind of like an athlete who's trained and all of a sudden is running much faster than they thought they could run. That's the way it happens when you're passionate. And the third thing is at least that has punctuated my own career is expect the unexpected because a lot of times things arise as an opportunity to change direction you should seriously look at those opportunities because it's happened to me multiple times in my career. I made a, a change in direction early on from a very successful career in immune-based diseases to all of a sudden devote all of my time to HIV. That was the best decision that I made. I never really liked the idea of policy and administration but when the job of the director of NIID opened 38 years ago, I said, you know, maybe I can do something with that job that's a little bit different than other directors have done. And it's been an incredible ride doing that. So my advice to the young people, keep an absolutely open mind for opportunities that come in front of you and always listen to your gut about being passionate about something. Perfect. Thanks. What else do you want to tell us? Well, I think that I just appreciate the opportunity. And and again, science is such an amazing discipline that for anybody who has even the slightest inkling of doing that, I just want to, you know, let them know that there's a whole world of wonder in that for you. Amen to that. Well, Tony, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Thank you very that much. I appreciate it. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org, or better yet, take our audience survey at science.org slash podcasts. You can also listen to the show there or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi and me, Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy and Megan Cantwell. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. 
When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.